The Five Little Fairies by Maud Burnham. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Said this little fairy, I'm as thirsty as can be. Said this little fairy, I'm hungry too, dear me. Said this little fairy, Who'll tell us where to go? Said this little fairy, I'm sure that I don't know. Said this little fairy, Let's brew some dewdrop tea. So they sipped it and ate honey beneath the maple tree. End of the Five Little Fairies by Maud Burnham Read by Ruth Golding Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Five hundred dollars by Heman White Chaplin. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Five hundred dollars by Heman White Chaplin. One. Captain Philo's sail-loft was a pleasant place to sit in, and it was much frequented. At one end was a wide, sliding door that opened on the water, and through it you saw the little harbor and the low, glistening sandbar at its entrance, and white caps in the sea beyond and shining sails. At the other end another wide door led by a gently descending, cleated platform to the ground. It was a pleasant place to rest and refresh the mind in, whether you chose to look in or out. You could rock in the haircloth chair by the water door and join in conversation with more active persons mending seines upon the wharf. Or you could dangle your heels from the workbench and listen to the stories and debates inside and look on Captain Philo sewing upon a mainsail. It was a summer afternoon, warm under the silver poplars, hot in the store and hotter in the open street, but the sail loft was cool. More than once, Captain Bennett was remarking from the rocking chair while his prunella shoes went up and down, more than once I wished that I could freight this loft to Calcutta on speculation and let it out so much ahead for so long a time to set in and cool off. How about them porous water jars they have there? asked Uncle Silas, who had never sailed beyond Cape Pogue. How do they work? Well, said the captain, they're so-so. But you set up this loft, both doors slid open, air drawing through and all right on Calcutta Main Street, or what they call the Maiden's Esplanade, and fitted up with settees like a conference meeting and advertise, and you could let out chances to set for twenty cents an hour. You'd have to have a man to take tickets to the door, said Uncle Silas, who had been looking for an easy job for forty years. That's sigh all over, said Captain Bennett with a wink that berth would be just his size. 
well said uncle silas faintly smiling it's no use rubbin the fur the wrong way stroke the world from head to tail is my rule speaking of folks being easy said captain bennett it seems there's quite a little story about david prince's voyage on the viola i thought he went off whaling rather in a hurry said captain philo and if it had been most anybody else i should have thought there was something up it seems said captain bennett it was like this you know delia wasn't much over ten years old when her mother died along a piece after her father and she came to live with us and you know how she was almost like one of the family well about eight years ago when she'd got to be towards nineteen it was then that david first set out to shine up to her and when he begun to come home from singing school with her that winter and got to come into the house quite often the next spring along i begun to feel a little shaky finally one sunday afternoon i was sitting out on the porch and she was singing hymns inside you know she was always singing and i called to her to quit and come out and sit down alongside of me and says i delia it can't be you're thinking of taking up with david prince well she flared a little and finally says she why shouldn't i or anybody that has the chance take david prince well says i i don't think you need to ask why i should say that a smart girl wouldn't want more than to travel once along the lower road and see those two run-down houses one deserted and the other handy by about as bad and the barn across the road that was raised and boarded in over forty years ago and never shingled and stood so till it's all rotted and sunk in what's that got to do with david says she it's got this to do with david says i that his father and his uncle ezekiel and their father before him good kindly men all seemed to settle settle somehow and it was all to-morrow and to-morrow with them and then i told delia how they sold off their wood and then their land piecemeal all but the spot where the old buildings stand and that's worth nothing and that's the way says i it'll be with david when he gets over being a boy and settles down it's in the blood and i don't want to see you delia keel-hauled there like david's mother prudence frost was that was said uncle silas originally she was a good smart girl and full of jingle but finally she give up and come to it left sleepin day out of the almanac washed dishes in cold water and made up beds at bedtime and when she ironed a shirt just like she'd iron a hoss-fly right into the bosom and lived a dog's life generally said captain bennett so i laid the whole thing out to delia the best way i knew how well says she i know you mean my good captain bennett but i shall take my chances and so she did well speaking of the barn said uncle silas do you remember that high shay that david's father had i was up to the widow pope's vendue the day he bid it off he managed to spunk up so fur as to hitch the shafts under his team and fetch the vehicle home and then he hadn't no place to put it up out of the weather and so he druv it along under that big baldin apple tree that used to stand by the pantry window on the north side of the house and he left it there with the shafts clawin down in the ground then the talk was he was going to build them a sort of a little tabernacle for it before the winter set in and he had down a load of timber from uncle joe's mill and he had it dumped down alongside of the shay but the shay wasn't never once hitched up nor the tabernacle built and the timber and the shay just set there side by side seein who'd speak first for twenty year to my certain knowledge 
and you go by there when it was blowin fresh and the old curtings would be flappin in and out black and white till finally the whole arrangement sunk out of sight i guess there's more or less rack there now if you should go pokin the grass it was thirty-one year ago come october that he bought the shay said captain philo it was the fall i was cast away on the tombstones and lost every dollar i had i remember it because the old man came down to the house of his own accord when i got home and let me have two hundred dollars he'd just been selling the west new field and when he'd sold land and had money on hand it was anybody's that wanted it but what was it about david's going off so sudden on the viola oh yes i forgot my errand said captain bennett and now i've got a drift in my story and i shall have to take an observation let's see where was i delia allowed she'd take her chances said uncle silas oh yes said captain bennett well you know how it was when they got married david fixed the old house up a little and mother put in some furniture and things for her and all went on first rate a while then you know how david begun to settle settle just the old way and couldn't seem to keep up to the wind appeared to carry a lee helm somehow and delia begun to take in work and go out to work and quit singing she never said a word even to my wife but i could see it cut her a good deal but all this time said uncle silas she's kept up smart allers had a high crower's feather in her bunnet and kept up her little boys a-looking like nine shillin dolls i couldn't a uh, ever called david lazy said captain philo he couldn't seem to make up his mind what to do next that's all but get him going remember how he worked at jason's fire and i know of my own knowledge he was in the surf for sixteen hours when that norwegian bark was on the bar i think there's some folks said uncle silas that their mind works all the time runs a day gang and runs a night gang you know how a hard sum'll shake itself out in your head overnight and i think it's the most natural thing that a man with an a number one active mind always should feel sort of tired and not know what ails him george don't you just get up and hand me that pipe you ain't doing nothing however it was said captain bennett delia saw that he was drifting to leeward and she was worried well you know when the reformation set in that winter and run crowded houses one night in the west church and the next in the other one night david surprised his wife by going and he sat in a back seat and come away and said nothing and the same the next night and the same for seven or eight nights right along finally one night they had a pretty searching sermon choose ye this day etc and i suppose the deacon here was rather expecting david to rise for prayers but instead of that as soon as amen was said he gets right up and off he goes and leaves delia there without saying a word to her or to anybody and goes right up to captain westcott's house and agrees to ship and glad enough captain w was to have him and next day off he went now here he is gone two years and over and comes home night before last his lay'll figure out five hundred dollars and the biggest thing is here the captain brought down his heavy hand for emphasis on uncle silas's knee that delia's kept herself and the children and never drawn one cent against the voyage so they've got the whole clear and they've been up this morning early and traded for the calendar place and they're going to move in to-morrow and i guess he means business now but they don't get paid off till monday said uncle silas they're all going up to town to be paid off then well he moves in to-morrow anyway said captain bennett monday night i believe he's going to pay down what he has and take a deed and give a mortgage back for the balance but uncle silas gravely shook his head 
"'I can't endorse this running in haste,' he said. "'I never in all my experience knew a man before to buy real estate "'without sort of going up the street and talking it over "'and comparing notes round generally. "'Now, we could have given him points down here about the calendar place.' "'Oh, he's made a good trade there,' said Captain Bennett. "'That all may be,' said Uncle Silas. "'But it's the principle, not the five cents, I'm looking at. "'I should have had more faith in his holding out "'if he hadn't jumped quite so quick.' slow bind fast find i say captain bennett rose and drew on a glass cloth coat that showed his suspenders through i must be on my winding way he said but did you hear how close he came to never coming back no well it was like this it was blowing a gale and a considerable sea on one night when they were rounding cape horn on the home voyage and she was pitching pretty bad and david was out on the jib boom taking in jib and somehow she pitched with a jerk so he lost his hold and went off and as he fell in the dark naturally he struck out both hands blind like this and he just happened to catch by sheer accident a gasket that was hanging from the jib boom and so he saved himself by a hair's breadth and when he came up they thought it was his ghost well i always make it a point to look on the bright side without exception said uncle silas nevertheless i prophesy it won't be two years before he'll have the place all eat up and sold out under the mortgage this jumpin so quick looks as if he was scattered to trust himself for a day well we shall see said captain bennett time will tell there are many little farms along the new england seaboard which the currents of life diverted from ancient channels have left one side pleasant and home-like often but of small money value the calendar place was such a farm it lay a mile from the village in a hamlet of half a dozen dwellings there was a substantial house with four large rooms below besides an l kitchen and above two sunny chambers each with a dormer and a gable window from the front fence projected for a hitching post a minerva carved from wood a figurehead washed up years before from the wreck of a brig with the bodies of the crew the house was on a little elevation and looked across the road near which it stood and over a sloping field or two to see from the windows you could count the sail in the north channel and look down the coast and follow with the eye the long low curving line of shore until at indian point it vanished or look up shore ten miles to where the coastline ended in a bold wooded headland which seemed by a perpetual mirage to bear foliage so lofty as to show daylight through beneath the branches at night you could see the flash of the revolving light on windmill rock and the constant rays from the lightship on the rips so that by day or night you could never be lonesome unless perhaps on some thick night when you could see no light and could only hear a grating knell from the bell-boy and could seem to see through the white darkness the waters washing over its swaying barrel there was a good-sized boarded barn well shingled on the roof with haymows and with room for two or three cows and a horse and a wagon and with wide doors fore and aft as the neighbors put it through its big front door you could look out to the sea there were twenty acres of land including a woodlot which could be thinned out every year to give one all his firewood and what was cut could hardly be missed such was the place which on the death of the window calendar had been offered for sale for eight hundred dollars for months it had stood empty stormed by all the sea winds lit up by the sun when at last an unexpected buyer had turned up in david prince it was a happy sunday that he passed with his little family at the new home 
they went all over the house again and again and looked from every window and planned where the flower frames would be put to take the sun then going out of doors they inspected the revolving clothes dryer which david with a seaman's instinct had already rigged with four little sloops to sail about on the ends of the projecting arms on mondays tacking after shirts and stockings then they went to the barn and david showed how he was going to cover the sides with spruce shingles so that he could have a warm place to work in the winter then they went over the fields and planned a garden for the next spring and then they went down to the shore and where a little arm of the sea made in david showed where he would haul up his dory and would keep his boat when he could afford to get one together in the meantime he was going to fish on shares with jacob foster who lived a few rods up the road then they all strolled back to the house and dined on shorebirds shot on saturday afternoon and new potatoes and turnips which jacob foster had brought in after dinner they all sat at the front windows in the room which they were pleased to call the parlor david holding on his knees the two oldest boys delighted with the recovery of such a sinbad of a father while the third still a little shy of him stood by his mother david told of the voyage repeating by request full half a dozen times the story of the night when he was snapped off the end of the jib-boom to do which he had to set the boys down and stand to make the swift sudden clutch with his eyes shut at the towing rope at which the boys screamed on every repetition after supper david and his wife leaving the children with orders to go to bed at the first flash from the windmill went to church they took the same back seat which they had the night that david shipped there was bald-headed deacon loose in his usual damocles seat exactly beneath the dangling chandelier which children watched in morbid hope of a horror there was the president of the dorcas society a gray-haired woman who had navigated home a full-rigged ship of the gold coast there were the grave-faced men who among them could have charted half the globe in the pulpit was the same old-fashioned bookish man who having led his college class had passed his life in this unknown parish lost in delight in his study in the great athenian's handling of the presumptuous glaucon or simply unfolding parables in his pulpit that former night came vividly back to delia prince through the opening hymn in which she did not join through the story of the feast in simon's house she was thinking of the time when david told her he had shipped and she had made up her mind to save a home but in the second hymn she joined and in her joy she forgot herself and sang as she had been used to sing when she was the leader of all the singing in a moment they all knew that she was there thus far the lord hath led me on thus far his power prolongs my days and every evening shall make known some fresh memorial of his grace two m isaacs was over the door mr isaacs was within without three golden balls were hanging like apples of the hesperides within was an array of goods which the three balls had brought in mr isaacs was walking to and fro behind the counter and briskly rubbing his hands my good wife sarah he said with a strong semitic accent those sudden raw east winds i am so frozen as if i was enjoying myself upon the skating rink and here it is the summer where is that long spring overcoat that german men hypothecated with us last evening between the saddle and the golden lace uniform you say and taking it down by means of a long hooked pole he put it on 
It covered his ears and swept the ground. It make me look like Aaron in those pictures, he said. It would have been a grasping disposition that could not be suited with something from out Mr. Isaac's stock. It would have been hard to name a faculty of the human soul for a member of the human body to which it could not lend aid and comfort. One musically inclined could draw the wailing bow or sway the accordion, pucker at the pensive flute, or beat the martial soul-arousing drum. One stripped, as it were, on his way to Jericho, could slink in here and select for himself a fig-leaf from a whole Eden of cutaway coats and wide checkered trousers, all fitting to surprise yourself and could be quite sure of finding a pair of boots, of whatever size was needed, of the very finest custom handwork, a misfit made for a gentleman in New York. A devout man, according to his leanings, could pray from the prayer-book of an impoverished Episcopalian, or sing from the hymn-book of an insolvent Baptist. "'So help me gracious,' Mr. Isaacs used to say, raising his shoulders and opening wide his palms, when you find a man so ungrateful that he cannot be fitted out with somethings from my stock, I really suppose you could not fit that man out in paradise. Mr. Isaacs was looking nervous, but it was not by the images which his ordinary stock and trade would naturally cause to arise that he was disturbed. Images, though they were of folly, improvidence, and distress, there was indeed hardly an article in the shop, except the new plated jewelry in the window, that was not suggestive of misery or sin. But in Mr. Isaac's well-poised mind no morbid fancies arose. "'Those hard winters makes me cheerful,' he was wont to say in the fall. "'They makes the business lively.' Still, Mr. Isaac's was a little troubled this afternoon, and singularly enough about a most happy purchase that he had just made at ninety per cent below value. There the articles lay upon the counter, a silk hat, a long surtout, a gold-headed cane, and a pair of large rubbers, a young man's derby hat, an overcoat, and rattan cane, and a pair of arctics, a lady's bonnet, and dolman and arctics, a young girl's hat with a soft bird's breast, and her sealskin sack and arctics, besides four small boys' hats and coats and arctics. It seemed as if some modern Elijah, a family man expectant of translation, had made with thrifty forethought an arrangement that Mr. Isaac's shop should be the point of departure, and flying off in joyous haste with wife and children, had left the general raiment on the counter. You would naturally have looked for a skylit hole in the ceiling. "'So help me gracious,' said Mr. Isaacs, turning the articles over. "'I suppose there's some policeman just so wicked and suspicious to say I must know those garments are stolen, scooped off some hat-tree the last winter at one grab.' "'Why do you enter those in de book together?' said Mrs. Isaac. "'If you put those separate in de book, how de policemen know they came in together?' "'That is a great danger, Sarah. That's just the way they fix our good friend Greenbaum. When they caught the chief, and he tell them where he sell some things, and Greenbaum had put down those earrings and those bracelets that Balmoral skirt for three different times, they say he must know those things was stolen. If not, why did he put those things down different from each other?' But so help me gracious, he added presently, I have not the least suspicions, like the babes unborn these goods are stolen. The man that brought them in was very frank and very much of a gentleman, and he lay his hand upon his bosom-pin, and swear he sell those things because he has no more use for them. His family all sick of typhoid fever, and cannot live the week out. But I suppose there's some policeman just so suspicious to say I must know those things are stolen. And so cruel suspicious, said Mrs. Isaacs. 
and your heart so pure and white like your shirt-bosom she meant his ideal shirt-bosom just like those evil-minded policemen he said you remember how they lock up our old friend abrahamson so help me gracious sent that good old man to prison just because he buy two gold watches and two pairs of gold spectacles and an ivory-handled knife and two empty pocket-books and two silk umbrellas and a seal-ring and two bunches of keys and two black wigs from a red-headed laboring man they said he must know that two old gentlemen were robbed of that personal property but here his attention was diverted by the sight of two men seamen to appearance who were looking into the show-window i like so much he said to see the public enjoying themselves in my window it give them so happy pleasure to see those lovely things and often they comes in and buy some things this young man he added after a pause seemed to admire those broad neckwear he look at both those two the foreign hand and the frolic i think he look most at de frolic said mrs isaacs i think he would come in if you go outside and take him by de arm like a true friend and bring him in my broder moses walk outside de whole day long and take each man when he go by and talk to him like his own broder with tears in his eyes and make dem come in and buy some dinks but mr isaacs only wrapped the long coat more closely about his linen garments and watched the younger man as he turned his eyes away from the foreign hand and the frolic and bent them on the trays in which were glittering tiers of rings and pins and rows of watches labelled warranted genuine fourteen dollars dirt cheap eight seventy five doc's watch pulse counting nineteen fifty he looked like he had some money said mrs isaacs perhaps he would come in and buy a watch if you go out and pull him in how can he buy something through the glass my brother moses say so many folks is bashful but at last the men after talking a while apparently of the goods in the window came in what's the price of some of those earrings in the window said the younger let's see what you've got for a couple of dollars or so so help me gracious said mr isaacs as he took from the show window three or four cards of plated earrings i knew you would come in to buy some things when i saw you look in the very first moment i say to my wife there is a good young man that will give a present to some lovely young lady yes sir the very words i said to sarah what's the price of this pair i haven't got any girl to treat but i've just got paid off for a whaling voyage and my lay figured up to a twenty-dollar bill above what i expected and i don't care if i do lay out a couple of dollars on my wife besides what i've brought home for her well sir said mr isaacs the good wife is the very best jewelry those are two dollars but only study this pair hold us up to the light and take a bird's-eye view through those lovely stones so round and large like green peas now look so now let your friend look i'm no judge said the other man i know what pleases me that's all but them would make a great display david wouldn't they you're right sir said mr isaac display is the very word my wife wear just the twins of this pair to the congregation every week mrs isaac raised her eyebrows she wore nothing but diamonds what's the price of these green ones asked david mr isaac shrugged his shoulders i suppose those are the finest articles of the kind in the whole creation he said we can let you have those to-day and he lowered his voice to a whisper and put his hand up beside his mouth to close out stock for six dollars they cost us only last week eight fifty but we are obliged to reduce stock prior to removal the building is to be taken down i would like those tip-top but i don't know it's a good deal of money for gewgaws my wife would take me to do for it 
I guess I must keep the two-dollar ones. I come pretty hard by my dollars, and a dollar means a good deal to me just now. But just once, look again, said Mr. Isaacs, and he stepped briskly behind his wife and held up an earring to each of her ears. See them on a chaste and lovely form. With these your wife will be still more lovely. All those other men will say, Where did that graceful lady find so rich earrings? You will see they are a great success. Her most bosom friends will hate her. They will turn so green like the grass on the ground with envy. It is a great pleasure when my wife wears those kind. Her very sisters cannot speak for anger, and her own mother looks so rigid like the Cardiff giant. Well, I guess I shall have to take them, said David, and you'll have to wrap them right up. We haven't got more than about time to get the train, have we, Calvin? So help me gracious, said Mr. Isaacs. Is there no time to sell our friend Calvin a pair? He will repent not to secure those other pair until his dying day. So sorry like he lose his ship some day upon those rocks. I suppose there is no others like those in the whole creation. But he wrapped the purchase up in a bit of white paper, and gave David Prince four trade dollars in change for a ten-dollar bill, and the two men went out, leaving Mr. Isaacs free to attend to a timid woman in black who had just come in to raise fifty cents upon a ring, while Mrs. Isaacs looked after a carpenter who proposed upon his edge-tools for rent money. Mr. Isaacs waved his hand and smiled as the men went out the door. "'You will find they are a success to surprise yourself,' he called out. Her most bosom friends will writhe and scream with envy. The winding line of the long New England coast faces the sea in its sweeping curves in every direction. From the colander place the ocean lay to the south. Though elsewhere east winds might be blowing harsh upon the coast, here almost every day and all day long in summer the southwest wind came pouring in from the expanse of waters, fresh and cool, boisterous often, but never chill. And even winds from the east lost edge in crossing miles of pitch-pine woods, of planted fields, of sandy ponds, of pastures, and came in softened down and friendly. A gentle breeze was drifting in from the sea. All day long it had been blowing, salt and strong and riotous, tossing the pine-tops, bending the corn, swaying the trees in the orchards, but now it was preparing to die away, as was its wont at sundown, to give to the woods, the cornfields, and the orchards a little space of rest and peace before it should rise again in the early evening to toss them all night long. The blue of the sky was blue in the water. Every object stood out sharp and clear. Down the low curving shoreline curls of smoke rose from distant roofs, and on the headland up the coast the fairy forest in the air was outlined with precision. Distant ships were moving like still pictures on the horizon, as if that spell were laid on them which hushed the enchanted palace. There was just sea enough to roll the bell-boy gently, and now and then was rung an idle note of warning. Three fishing-boats lay anchored off the spindle, rising and falling, and every now and then a sea broke on the rocks. On the white sand beach waves were rolling in, dying softly away along the shore, or heavily breaking with a long flying line of foam. The sun was fast descending. Delia Prince went out to the corner of the house and shaded her eyes to look at the sunset. The white clouds turned to a flaming red, and the reflection died to crimson the surface of the creeks. The sun descended toward the wooded bluff that flanked the bay, sent a thousand shattered dazzling rays through the trees, and disappeared. The red of the clouds and the red of the water gave place to gray. 
The wind died down. The silence was intense, all the more marked because of the few sharp sounds that broke it now and then. Across the bay, near shore, a man was raking oysters. He stood in the stern of his skiff, and the bow was up in the air. Nearby, a girl was driving sluggish cows along the beach, and her shrill cries came over the water. By a cottage on the bank, a boy was chopping brush upon a block, and Delia watched the silent blows and heard the sound come after. He smiled as she looked, for every night she saw the boy's mother stand at the door to call him, and saw him come reluctant to his task. There was a sense of friendly companionship in all these homely sights and sounds. It was different from the old house, shut in close by a second growth of birch and oak. The table was standing ready for late supper. The children had gone for blueberries to the island, and they would soon come home, and David was due, too, with his money. She smiled as he appeared. The ascent to the brow of the hills was so sharp that first you saw a hat in movement, then a head, then shoulders, body, legs, and feet. She ran quickly down the road to meet him and took his arm. "'You couldn't catch the noon train?' she said. Captain Wells stopped at the door a little while ago to see what time we should be down to get the deed, and luckily I told him that we might not be down until into the evening. He said he'd stay at home and wait until we came. "'Delia,' said David, when he had seated himself at the house, "'I've got bad news to tell you, and I may as well out with it first as last. "'You haven't shipped for another whaling voyage?' "'No, that would be nothing,' he said. "'Delia stood and looked at him.' Well, she said, didn't you get as much as you counted on? Yes, twenty more. It isn't anything about the children. I expect them home every minute. No. Delia, he said, you was a great fool ever to have me. You ought to have taken advice. What is the matter, she said. Why don't you tell me? I've lost the money, he said. The captain warned me how apt a seafaring man is to lose money but I didn't take any heed, and I went off with Calvin Green. With Calvin Green? What did I tell you? she said. Wait a minute. And I stopped into a jewelry store and bought you a pair of earrings, and I came off and left my wallet on the counter, the way that fool Joe Bassett did to Gloucester. When I went back, the rascal claimed he never saw me before, and he didn't know me from the prophet Samuel as I was born that minute. And now they'll all say, and it's true, that I'm a chip off the old block, and I'm bound to come out at the little end. There, he said, as he opened the little parcel and took out the earrings, there's what's left of five hundred and twenty dollars, and you must make the most of them. Hold them up to the light, and see how handsome they are. I don't know, after all, but they are worth a while for a man to pitch overboard off Cape Horn and Harpoon Whales two years for. All is, just tell folks they cost five hundred dollars, and they'll be just as good as hen's eggs diamonds. In fact, I don't know, but I sort of like the situation, he went on in a moment. It seems sort of natural and homelike. I should have felt homesick if I'd really succeeded in getting this place paid for. Twould have seemed like getting proud and going back on my own relations. And then it'll please everybody to say, I told you so. There'll be high sport around town when it gets out, and we backwater down to the old place. Come, say something, Delia, he said in a moment. Why don't you say something about it? Don't you care that the money's lost, that you stand here and don't say a word and look at nothing? I don't want to say anything now, she said. I want to think. Well, said Captain Bennett the next day to his wife, Delia's got more spunk. 
I should have felt like laying right down in the shafts in her place, but instead of that, to actually go and talk them into letting her keep the calendar place and pay for it so much a month, and David signed a paper to do it. I guess the truth was known, said Mrs. Bennet, knitting on, that come to think it over, she was more scared of David settling back than she was for losing the money. She's got a pull on him now, said the captain, anyway, for if he once agrees to a thing, he'll always do it. 3. No one fully knows the New England autumn who has not seen its colors on the extreme old colony seaboard. There are no mountain ranges opening out far reaches of burning maples, but there are miles of salt marsh spreading as far as the eye can reach, cut by countless creeks displaying a vast expanse of soft, rich shades of brown. There are cranberry meadows of twenty, thirty, or fifty level acres, covered with matted vines and crimson with berries. There are deserted pastures, bright with goldenrod and asters. And everywhere along the shores against the dark pine woods are the varied reds of oaks, of blackberry vines, of woodbine, and of sumac. It was a bright fall afternoon. Most of the boats were in and lay near shore before the sail-loft door. The sails were up to dry, for it had been wet outside, looking doubly white against the colors of the shore. In the sail-loft they were telling stories. "'No, I don't think myself,' said Deacon Luce from the rocking-chair, "'that ministers always show what we call horse-sense. "'They used to tell a story of Parson Allen "'that preached in the old town in my father's time that pleased me. "'One spring the parson took a notion to raise a pig, "'so he went down to Jim Barrows that lived there handy by, "'and says he, "'Mr. Barrows, I hear you have a litter of young pigs, "'and I should like to have one to raise.' So Jim, he got his stilliards, and weighed him out one, and the minister paid him, and Jim, he sent it up. Well, the minister kept it some three months, and he used to go out every day and put on his spectacles and take his scythe down from the apple tree and mow pigweed for him, and he brought cornmeal to feed him up with, and one way and another he laid out a good deal on him. The pig fattened well, but the whole incessant time he was either rooting out and getting into the garden, or he'd catch his foot in behind the trough and squeal like mad, or something else, so that the minister had to keep leaving his sermon writing to straighten him out, and the minister's wife complained of the squealing when she had company. And so the parson decided to heave the enterprise up, and Jim sent up and took the pig back. "'Come to settle. How do we stand?' says the minister. "'Oh, just as you say,' says Jim. "'I'll leave it to you.' well says the minister on the hand you've got back a pig and you've been paid for but on the other hand i've got the use of him for some three months and so i guess we're square talking of preachers said caleb parker reminds me of a story they tell of uncle cephas baskin of north haven uncle cephas was a shoemaker and he never went out to sea much only to anchor his skiff in the narrows abreast of his house and catch a mess of scup or to pull a load of salt hay from sanquit island but he used to visit his married daughter in vermont and up there they know he come from the seaboard and they had a sabbath school concert and nothing would do but captain bascom must talk to the boys and tell a sea yarn and draw a moral the way the deacon here does the deacon gravely smiled and stroked his beard. Well, Uncle Cephas was rather pleased with his name of Captain Bascom, and he didn't like to go back on it, and so he flaxed round and get up something. It seems he had heard a summer boarder talk in Sabbath school at North Haven. 
he told how a poor boy minded his mother and then got to ten store and then kept store himself and then he jumped it on them that poor boy says he now stands before you so uncle cephas thought him up a similar yarn well he had never spoke in meeting before and he hemmed and hawed some but he got on quite well while he was telling about a certain poor boy and all that and how the boy when he grew up was out at sea in an open boat and saw a great swordfish making for the boat hail columbia and bound to stave right through her and sink her and how this man he took an oar and gave it a swing and broke the critter's sword square off and then uncle cephas he'd begun to get a little flustered he stopped short and waves his arms and says he boys what do you think that swordfish now stands before you i callate that brought the house down captain philo who had laid down his three-cornered sail-needle listened to this exciting story readjusted the leather thimble that covered his arm and began to sew again uncle silas sitting near the water door in his brown overalls made with a breast apron and suspender straps looked out at the boats a silence fell on the company it was broken by calvin green a man was telling me a rather curious story the other night he said i was just explaining to him exactly how twas that david prince lost his money and so he told this there was a boy that was clerk in a store and one day they sent him over to the bank to get some money it was before the war and the bank gave him twenty ten dollar gold pieces but when he got back to the store there was one short the boy hadn't nothing to say he admitted he hadn't dropped none because he'd put em in a leather bag where he couldn't lose one without he lost all and the cashier knew he hadn't made any mistake the storekeeper he heard the story and then he put his hand on the boy's shoulder and says he i don't know what to make of this but i believe this boy says he and we'll just drop it and say no more about it so it run along and the next day that it rained one of the clerks in the store took down an old umbrella and come to unfurl it out falls a ten dollar gold piece seems that the boy had that umbrella that day and hooked it onto the counter in the bank by the handle and one of the coins must have slid off into it when he was counting em and then he probably didn't spread the umbrella coming back and as this man said that was telling me it don't do to bet too much on suspicion now only for that jew's being such a hard character according to the newspapers i should be loath to charge him with taking david's money i should say david might have lost it somewhere else nobody spoke captain bennett whistled softly i never felt so bad in my life continued green as i did when he missed his money when we come up into the depot he was telling me a kind of comical story about old jim tory how he wanted to find out if all his hens was laying or if any of em was disposed to shirk and he got him a pass-book ruled in columns and opened a ledger account with every hen by a name he give her and we got up to the ticket window and he put his hand into his breast pocket for his wallet by george i've seen him chaff and joke sort of quiet when we was going to ride under every minute but he turned as white then as that new mainsail and off he went like a shot but twas no use of course the jewelry feller wouldn't disgorge on david's say-so without no proof it was like this he went on the counter was here and david stood there and i was here and we both come off together but i tell you the way david looked when he put his hand for his wallet he stopped laughing as if he see a ghost i can't get it out of my head and how the man that stole the money can stand it i can't figure out 
"'Perhaps he's calloused,' said the deacon, by what the paper said the other night about his buying a parcel of clothes hooked out of some man's entry. We concluded twas the same man by the name. "'Can't believe all that's in the paper,' said Perez Todd. "'You know the paper had me to be married once. The boys put it in for fun. They made up the name for the female, I guess, for I've been kind of shying around for her this ten year, and haven't seen no such woman.' yes sir he's a hard ticket said green that's so every time well i must be going i agreed to go and help elbridge over at half flood half flood about five said captain bennett you haven't any great time to spare green went to the shore rattled the skiff down over the beach to the water and pulled away with quick short strokes first the skiff was cut off from sight by the marsh bank then the rower's head alone was seen above the tall brown grasses and then he pulled around the bend and was lost to view behind a mass of flaming woodbine, and still in the distance could be heard across the water the rattle of his oars in the thole pins. "'Well, Silas,' said Captain Bennett. "'Well,' said Uncle Silas. "'Oh, I've nothing to say,' said Captain Bennett. "'Nor I,' said Uncle Silas. "'Calvin's always seemed to be a good-hearted fellow,' said Captain Philo, "'since he's lived here.' oh yes said captain bennett seems to feel for david surprisingly told me all about the losing of the money told my wife told my boy told uncle joe told our minister told the doctor told zimri cobb told cyrus bass told captain john wells told patrick cone and proves it out to em all twas the jew that did it kind of zealous like the apostle paul supplying the pulpit to the gentiles said the deacon won't let alone of a man till he gives in to hebrews in the wrong but i've nothing to say said captain bennett oh nor i said uncle silas from the distance borne on the gentle breeze a click as even as a pulse beat came faintly over the water he may be a good-hearted fellow said the deacon but i don't know as i hanker to be the man that's pullin that skiff but then that may be simply and solely because i prefer a hair-cloth rocker to a skiff delia said david prince to his wife one afternoon calvin green has bought four tickets to that stereopticon show that's going to be in the west church tonight, and he gave me two for you and me i don't want his tickets she replied ironing away at the sunny window now what's the use of talking that way said her husband as much as to say i have my opinion she said well said her husband i think it's a hard way to use a man just because he happened to be by when i lost my money i'll tell you said delia stopping her work we will go and all i'll say is this you see if after the lecture's over he doesn't find a text in it to talk about our money now you just wait and see that's all ladies and gentlemen said the lecturer standing by a great circle of light thrown on the wall behind the pulpit i have now with a feeling of awe befitting this sacred place thus given you in the first part of my lecture a succinct view of the origin rise and growth of the globe on which as the poet has justly said we dwell i have shown you corroborating scripture the earth without form and void the awful monsters of the silurian age and man and the garden of eden i now invite you to journey with me as one has said across the continent Travelling has ever been viewed as a means of education. Thus Athenian sages sought the learning of the Orient. 
thus may we this evening without toil or peril or expense beyond the fifteen cents already incurred for the admission fee journey in spirit from the wild atlantic to the sunset coast in the words of the sacred lyrist edgar a poe my country tis of thee that i shall now display some views of course we start from boston on the way to new york we will first pause to view the scene where putnam galloped down a flight of steps beneath the hostile fire see both mane and coat-tails flying in the wind and the eyes of steed and rider wildly dilated with excitement next we pause in brooklyn and from my immense variety of scenes in the city of churches i choose the fireman's monument in greenwood cemetery here they lie low who raised their ladders high here they still live for heroes cannot die a voice how many are buried there i would say at a venture eighteen a rustle of sympathy among the women passing on and coming thence to the metropolis of new york i am greatly embarrassed so vast is the richness and variety of views but i will show first the five points great eagerness and cries down front of late philanthropy and religion walking in sweet converse hand in hand have relieved the horrors of this region and now one may walk there comparatively safe sudden cessation of interest i will give even another view of the metropolis a charming scene in central park here wavered dimly on the screen five bushes and a nursery maid with baby carriage from this exquisite picture you may gain some faint idea of the charms of that paradise raised by the wand of taste and skill in a waste of arid sands passing westward i now present the suspension bridge at niagara erected by drawing over the majestic stream a cord a small roof then a wire until the whole vast framework was complete the idea was taken from the spider's web thus the humblest may guide the highest and i love to recall in this connection that the lamented lincoln some years before signing the emancipation proclamation heard me lecture on slavery in peoria next we come to cleveland and our attention is seized by three cannons taken in the famous naval battle on the lake every visitor pauses here and with uncovered head and eyes suffused with tears recalls the sacrifices of the fathers next we view chicago the morning after the fire on every hand are blackened ruins painful proofs of the vicissitudes of human fortune a voice i was there at the time i am delighted to know it such spontaneous corroboration of the audience is to the lecturer's heart as a draught from the well of baca laughter and a voice what baker but in order to cross so broad a continent we must not dally and next i show you the mormon temple in salt lake city the seat of a defiant system of sin all things however have their uses and i can recommend this religion to any young lady present who does not find it easy to secure a helpmeet appreciative laughter and now for a view of the pacific states i choose two of the famed big trees judge them by the two men who stand like widow's mites beside them these trees are called father and daughter a voice which is father and which is daughter i am not informed but from their appearance i judge that the nearer is the father derisive laughter and now we approach a climax 
when the ten thousand in their storied march reached at last the blue waters of the euxine thrilled with joy they loudly cried the sea the sea so we travellers likewise reach at last the western ocean and for a striking scene upon its waters i present a pacific mail steamer at her dock in the harbour of san francisco in the left foreground is a chinese laundry and now i can hardly restrain myself from passing on to asia for imagination taking fire beckons to nifon and the flowery kingdom but remorseless time says no and we pause at the golden gate in closing now i will as is usual give one or two moral views relieved by others of a somewhat playful character first is napoleon's grave he who held Europe, struggling in his hand, died a prisoner in solitudes remote, far from home endearments. Next you see Daniel Lambert, whose greatness was of a more solid cast, less grasping in his pretensions than Napoleon. He lived an honoured life and died, I understand, among his relatives. Next is a picture of the guillotine, calling up thoughts of severed heads from memory's cloisters on the left you see a ghastly head on the right a decapitated trunk by the victims stand the bloody actors in the tragedy ladies and gentlemen when i review the awful guilt of marat and robespierre humbly do i give thanks that i have been kept from yielding like them to fierce ambition and lust of power and that i can lay my head upon a peaceful pillow at my home in fall river next is the serenade Part one: The Spanish lover with bow-knot shoes, pointed hat, and mantle over shoulder stands with his lute on the covered water-butt, while at the casement above is his lady's charming face. Part two: The head of the water-butt has given away, and the angry father from his window beholds a scene of luckless misery. I turn now to a more pleasing view: the village blacksmith. The mighty man is at his work, and by a triumph of art I am enabled to show his fine physique in action. Now you see his arm uplifted, and now the hammer is on the iron. Up, down, up, down. A voice. There are two right arms. That arises from some slight defect in the arrangement of the light. The uplifted arm does not entirely vanish when the lowered arm appears. But to the thoughtful observer such slight contrasts only heighten enjoyment ladies and gentlemen a single word in closing our transcontinental journey this evening ended at the golden gate when life's journey ends may we not so pause but as the poet judson bacchus sweetly sings may we find an angel wait to lead us through the golden gate meanwhile adieu david prince and his wife walked slowly home in the clear cold moonlight did you notice said delia how the man kept saying that he didn't know just what to pick out to show well i heard the kelly boy that helped at the lamps say that they showed every identical picture there was i suppose there are lots of odds and ends he picked up at an auction i think he was a kind of humbug said calvin green who with his wife had come up close behind see how he kept dragging in his morals just like overhauling a trawl and taking off a haddock every once so often what a way to travel said his wife to go kerjump from new york city to niagara and from there to cleveland he must have thought we had long stilts the pictures were rather here and there and everywhere to be sure said david but i had a good deal of charity for these men i suppose they're put to it for bread and butter well i don't know said green 
I don't think it has a good influence on young people to show such a picture as that man that they murdered by slicing his head off with that machine. I don't like such things to be brought up. I should think the opposite, said his wife, laughing. By the way you've told every man in town about David's money, and the way he blanched when he missed it, I think you'd better take a lesson yourself about bringing up dreadful things. When they reached Green's house, a low black cottage, they stopped a moment for the women to finish a discussion about croup. "'How did that look to you now, David?' said Green. "'Didn't you think it would have been a good deal better to have left that picture out?' "'Which one?' said David. "'Why, the one where they chopped the man's head off with that machine, and they were standing by looking at the corpse. I didn't like to see such things, for my part.' i don't know said david i didn't think about it particularly i understood it was in the french revolution well see all that flummer diddle he got off about it said green just as if any fool didn't know that a man couldn't sleep that was haunted by a thing like that well some can stomach anything and i suppose some can sleep on anything said david i guess it would take more than slicing one man's head off to make that jew lie awake nights if he'd only admitted that i'd been there but as soon as I said I'd left something, then for him and his wife to claim they never saw me. They're cool ones. Well, right there, about what my wife flung out, said Green, glancing over his shoulder to where the women were talking, both at once, woman fashion. You know my wife's way. You haven't ever heard any such talk going around, have you, as that I was hounding folks about your bad luck? I say an honest man speaks right out. No fear, no favor. Ain't that so? It was a bitterly cold, clear night a few weeks later. Runners squeaked and boot heels crunched in the road. David had passed Green's house at seven o'clock going to the store. He always went by there at that time, Saturdays, and passed again returning home at about eight. When he reached the gate on his return, Green was standing there, apparently waiting. "'Come into the house a minute, David,' he said. "'I want to see you.' He led him into the kitchen. "'My wife's gone over to Aunt Nathan's for the evening,' he said. He shut the door and locked it. "'There,' he said. "'I can't stand it any longer,' and he laid upon a table at David's side a wallet. David took it up and opened it. It held a great roll of bills. "'What does this mean?' he said. "'Why, this is mine. You don't mean—' "'I mean I stole it,' said Green. David sat down. "'I wish you had put it in the fire,' he said, and never told me.' "'There's just one thing I want to say,' said Green. "'I picked it up first to give it to you, "'and when I saw that you had forgot it, "'I thought I'd have a little joke on you for a while, "'and then, when I saw how things was going, "'I kind of drifted into keeping it. "'You know how I come home, "'all my voyage eat up, "'and a hundred dollars debts besides, "'and children sick, but every dollar's there. "'Now what I ask,' he added, "'is four days' time to ship and get away. "'What are you going to do?' nothing said david settle your debts and pay me when you can and taking five twenty-dollar bills from the wallet he left them on the table and went away end of five hundred dollars by heman white chaplin this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to find out how you can volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com.
At Thirty-Five by Robert W. Service. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Three score and ten, the psalmist saith, and half my course is well nigh run. I've had my flout at dusty death, I've had my whack of feast and fun. I've mocked at those who prate and preach, I've laughed with any man alive. But now, with sobered heart, I reach the great divide of thirty-five. And looking back, I must confess, I've little cause to feel elate. I've played the mummer more or less, I've fumbled fortune, flouted fate. I've vastly dreamed and little done, I've idly watched my brother strive. Oh, I have loitered in the sun by primrose paths to thirty-five. And those who matched me in the race, well, some are out and trampled down, the others jog with sober pace, yet one wins delicate renown. O midnight feast and famished dawn, O gay hard life with hope alive, O golden youth forever gone, how sweet you seem at thirty-five. Each of our lives is just a book, as absolute as holy writ. We humbly read, and may not look ahead, nor change one word of it. And here are joys, and here are pains, and here we fail, and here we thrive. O oh, wondrous volume, what remains when we reach chapter thirty-five? The very best, I dare to hope, ere fate writes fini to the tome, a wiser head, a wider scope, and for the gypsy heart, a home. A songful home with loved ones near, with joy, with sunshine all alive. Watch me grow younger every year. Old age, thy name is thirty-five. End of At Thirty-Five by Robert W. Service Sonnet Five by William Shakespeare. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Sonnet Five by William Shakespeare, read by Mary Beth Blackburn. Those hours that with gentle work did frame the lovely gaze where every eye doth dwell will play the tyrants to the very same and that unfair which fairly doth excel for never resting time leads summer on to hideous winter and confounds him there sap checked with frost and lusty leaves quite gone beauty o'ershadowed and bareness everywhere then were not summer's distillation left a liquid prisoner pent in walls of glass beauty's effect with beauty were bereft nor it nor no remembrance what it was but flowers distilled though they with winter meet least but their show their substance still lives sweet end of sonnet five by william shakespeare read by mary beth blackburn this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Day Came Slow Till Five O'Clock by Emily Dickinson This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The day came slow till five o'clock, then sprang before the hills like hindered rubies, or the light a sudden musket spills. The purple could not keep the east, the sunrise shook abroad like breadths of topaz packed in the night. The lady just unrolled, the happy winds, their timbrels took, the birds, in docile rows, arranged themselves around their prince, the wind, his prince of those. The orchard sparkled like a jew, how mighty twas to be a guest in this stupendous place, the parlor of the day. End of The Day Came Slow Till Five O'Clock by Emily Dickinson The Life of Five Points by Edna Clare Briner this is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A life went on in the town of Five Points. Five Points, the town was called, because it was laid out in the form of a star with five points, and these points picked it out and circumscribed it. The life that was lived there was in this wise. Over the centre of the town it hung thick and heavy, a great mass of tangled strands, of all the colours that were ever seen, but stained and murky-looking, from something that oozed out, no one could tell from which of the entangling cords. In five directions heavy strands came in to the great knot in the centre, and from it there floated out, now this way, now that, loose threads like tentacles, seeking to fasten themselves on whatever came within their grasp. All over the town thin threads criss-crossed back and forth in and out among the heavy strands, making little snarls wherever several souls lived or were gathered together. One could see, by looking intently, that the tangling knotted strands and threads were woven into the rough pattern of a star. Life, trembling through the mass in the centre, streamed back and forth over the incoming strands, irregularly and in ever-changing volume, pulling at the smaller knots here and there in constant disturbance. It swayed the loosely woven mass above the schoolhouse, shaking out glints of color from the thin bright cords, golden yellows and deep blues, vivid reds and greens. It twisted and untwisted the small black knot above the town hotel, it arose in murky vapour from the large knots above each of the churches. All over the town it quivered through the fine entangling threads, making the pattern change in colour, loosening and tightening the weaving. In this fashion life came forth from the body which it inhabited. This is the way the town lay underneath it. From a large round of foot-tramped earth, 
five wide streets radiated out in as many directions for a length of eight or ten houses and yards then the wide dirt street became a narrow road the narrow boardwalks flanking it on either side stopped suddenly and faintly worn paths carried out their line for a space of three minutes walk when all at once rose up the wall of a forest the road plunged through and was immediately swallowed up this is the way it was in all five directions from five points round about the town forests lay thick and dark like the dark heavens around the cities of the sky and held it off secure from every other life-containing place the roads that pierced the wall of the forest led in deeper and deeper cutting their way around shaggy foothills down to swift streams and on and up again to heights in and out of obscure notches they must finally have sprung out again through another wall of forest to other towns but as far as five points was concerned they led simply to lumber mills sitting like chained ravening creatures at safe distances from one another eating slowly away at the thick woods as if trying to remove the screen that held the town off to itself in the beginning there was no town at all but miles and miles of virgin forest clothing the earth that humped itself into rough-bosomed hills and hummocks then the forest was its own birds nested in its dense leafage fish multiplied in the clear-running streams wild creatures ranged its fastnesses in security the trees touched by no harsher hand than that which turns the rhythmically changing seasons added year by year ring upon ring to their girls suddenly human masters appeared they looked at the girth of the trees appraised the wealth that lay hidden there marked the plan of its taking out they brought in workers cleared a space for headquarters in the midst of their great tracks cut roads out through the forest and wherever swift streams crossed they set mills the cleared space they laid out symmetrically in a tree-fringed centre of common ground encircled by a main street for stores and offices with streets for houses leading out to the edge of the clearing in the southeast corner of the town they set aside a large square of land against the forest for a schoolhouse thus five points was made as nearly in the centre of the great uncut region as it could well be and still beyond the narrow gauge railroad already passing through to make junction with larger roads in short order there was a regular town with a station halfway down the street where the railroad cut through and near it a town hotel with a bar a post office several stores a candy shop and a dentist's office fronting the round of earth in the centre five churches set each on its own street and as far from the centre of the town as possible and a six-room schoolhouse with a flagpole one mile two miles five and six miles distant in the forest sawmills buzzed away strangely noisy amid their silent clumsy lumbermen and mill folk one after another all those diverse persons necessary for carrying on the work of a small community drifted in they cut themselves loose from other communities and hastened hither to help make this new one each moved by his own particular reason each bringing to the making of a life the threads of his own deep desire the threads interlaced with other threads twisted into strands 
knotted with other strands, and the life formed itself and hung trembling, thick and powerful, over the town. The mill-owners and managers came first, bringing strong warp-threads for the life. They had to have the town to take out their products and bring in supplies. They wanted to make money as fast as possible. Let the town go to hell, they said. They cared little how the life went so that it did go. Most of them lived alternately as heads of families, at home two hundred miles away, and as bachelors at their mills and extract works. Mr. Stillman, owner of hundreds of acres of forest, was different. He wanted to be near at hand to watch his timber being taken out slowly and carefully, and meanwhile to bring up his two small sons, healthy and virtuous, far away from city influences. He made a small farm up in the high southwest segment of the town against the woods, with orchards and sheep pasture and beehives, and a big white farmhouse, solidly built. He became a deacon in the Presbyterian Church, and one of the cornerstones of the town. Mr. Goff, owner of mills six miles out, kept up a comfortable place in town to serve as a halfway house, between his mills and his home in a city a couple of hundred miles distant. He believed that his appearance as a regular townsman had a steadying influence on his workmen, that it gave them faith in him. His placid middle-aged wife accompanied him back and forth on his weekly visits to the mills, and interested herself in those of his workers who had families. Mill manager Henderson snapped at the chance to run the company store, as well as to manage several mills. He saw in it something besides food and clothing for his large family of red-haired girls. Although he lived down at one of the mills, he was counted as a townsman. He was a pillar in the Methodist church, and his eldest daughter played the piano there. George Brainerd, pudgy chief clerk of the company store, was hand-in-glove with Henderson. He loved giving all his energies, undistracted by family or other ties, to the task of making the company's workers come out at the end of the season in the company's debt, instead of having cleared a few hundred dollars, as they were made to believe, on the day they were hired, would be the case. The percentage he received for his cleverness was nothing to him in comparison with the satisfaction he felt in his ability to manipulate. Lanky Jim Dunn, the station agent, thirty-three and unmarried, satisfied his hunger for new places by coming to five points. He hated old settled lines of conduct. As station agent, he had a hand in everything and on every one that came in and went out of the town. He held a sort of gauge on the life of the town. He chaffed all the girls who came down to see the evening train come in, and tipped off the young men as to what was doing at the town hotel. Dr. Smelter, thin-lipped and cold-eyed, elegant in manner and in dress, left his former practice without regret. He opened his office in five points, hoping that in a new community obscure diseases did not flourish. He was certain that lack of skill would not be as apparent there as in a well-established village. Reverend Trottam had been lured hither by the anticipation of a virgin field for saving souls. Reverend Little, because he dared not let any of his own fold be exposed to the pitfalls of an opposing creed. Dave Fellows left off setting chain pumps in Gurnersville, and renewed his teaching experience by coming to five points to be principal of the school. Dick Shelton's wife dragged her large brood of little girls and her drunken husband 
a long afterfellows in order to be sure of someone to bring dick home from the saloon before he drank up the last penny it made little difference to her where she earned the family living by washing so they came one after another and filled up the town abe cohen the jew clothing dealer baringer the druggist dr barton rival of dr smelter and a far more highly competent practitioner jake o'flaherty the saloon-keeper widow stokes rag-carpet weaver and gossip jeremy whitling town carpenter and his golden blonde daughter lucy school-teacher dr salmer dentist every small community needs these various souls no sooner is the earth scraped clean for a new village than they come one by one until the town is complete so it happened in five points until there came to be somewhat fewer than a thousand souls there the town stood stores and offices completely took up the circle of main street and straggled a little down the resident streets under the fringe of trees business hummed where side by side flourished grimes's meat shop the drug store with the dentist's office above henderson's general store as the company store was called brinker's grocery store the clothing emporium mr gilroy's barber shop bacchus's hardware and the post office the five points argus issued weekly its two pages from the dingy office behind the drug store graham's livery did a big business down near the station each church had gathered its own rightful members within its round of sunday and midweek services its special observances on christmas and easter and children's day in the spring of each year a one-ring circus encamped for a day on the common ground in the centre of the town and drew all the people in orderly array under its tent on the fourth of july the whole town again came together in the centre common in fashion less orderly irrespective of creed or money worth celebrating the deeds of their ancestors by drinking lemonade and setting off firecrackers after a while no one could remember when it had been any different those who came to town as little children grew into gawky youths knowing no more about other parts of the world than their geography books told them when any one died a strand in the life hanging above the town broken flapped in the wind growing more and more frayed with the passing of time until after a year or so its tatters were noticeable only as a sort of roughness upon the pattern when a child was born a thin tentacle from the central mass of strands reached out and fastened itself upon him dragging out his desire year by year until the strand was thick and strong and woven insecurely among the old scaly ones the folk who lived at the mills had hardly anything to do with the life of five points they were merely the dynamo that kept the life alive they were busied down in the woods making the money for the men who made the town they came to town only on saturday nights they bought a flannel shirt and provisions at the company store a bag of candy at andy's for the hotel and then went back to have their weekly orgy in their own familiar surroundings they had little effect on the life of the town that was contained almost entirely within the five points where the road met the forest the life of five points had one fearful enemy its home was in the black forest 
without any warning it was likely to break out upon the town its long red tongues leaping out striving to lick everything into its red gullet it was a thirsty animal if one gave it enough water it went back into its lair five points had only drilled wells in backyards the nearest big stream was a mile away twice already during the existence of the life the enemy had started forth from its lair the first time was not long after the town started and the pattern of life was hardly more than indicated in the loosely woven threads down in the forest the people saw a long red tongue leaping with brooms and staves they ran to meet it far from their dwellings beating it with fury as they felt the heat of its breath in their faces they thought of ministers words in past sermons young desires and aspirations long dormant began to throb into being they prayed for safety they promised to give up their sins they determined to be hard on themselves in the performance of daily duties the life suspended above them untwisted its loosely gathered in strands the strands shone with a golden light and entwined again in soft forms with death-dealing blows they laid the enemy black and broken about grant's mills a mile away and then went back to their homes telling each other how brave they had been pride swelled up their hearts they boasted that they could take care of themselves old habits slipped back upon their aspirations and crushed them again into hidden corners life gathered up its loose woven pattern of dull threads and hung trembling over the town worsting the enemy brought the people more closely together suddenly they seemed to know each other for the first time they made changes entered into bonds drew lines and settled into their ways life grew quickly with its strands woven tightly together into a weaving that would be hard to unloose the mill managers made money they saw to it that their mills buzzed away continually they visited their homes regularly mr stillman's farm flourished his apple trees were bearing the school children understood that they could always have apples for the asking the stillman boys did not go to school they had a tutor their father whipped them soundly when they disobeyed him by going to play in the streets of the town with the other children dave fellows had finally persuaded dick shelton to take a cure dick shelton sober it was discovered was a man of culture and knew into the bargain all the points of the law so he was made justice of the peace his wife stopped taking in washing and spent her days trying to keep the children out of the front room where dick tried his cases dave fellows himself gave up the principalship of the school finding its meagre return insufficient to meet the needs of an increasing family yielding to the persuasion of henderson he became contractor for taking out timber at trout creek mill he counted on his two oldest sons to do men's work during the summer when school was not in session fellows moved his family into the very house in which henderson had lived henderson explained that he had to live in town to be near a doctor for his ailing wife and sickly girls the millmen told dave fellows that henderson was afraid of them because they had threatened him if he kept on overcharging them at the company store 
Abe Cohen did a thriving business in clothing. He had a long list of customers heavily in debt to him, through the promise that they could pay whenever they got ready. He dunned them openly on the street, so that they made a wider detour in order to avoid going past his store. Dr. Barton had established a reputation for kindness of heart, as well as skill in practice, that threatened his rival's goodwill. Helen Barton, the doctor's young daughter, perversely kept company with her father's rival. Every one felt sorry for the father, but secretly admired Dr. Smelter's diabolic tactics. Long forgotten was the enemy when it came the second time. On a dark night, when five points lay heavy in its slumbers, it bore down upon the north side of the town. Some sensitive sleeper, troubled in his dreams, awoke to see the dreadful red tongues cutting across the darkness like crimson banners. His cries aroused the town. All the fathers rushed out against the enemy. The mothers dressed their children and packed best things in valises, ready to flee when there was no longer any hope. For three days and three nights the enemy raged, leaping in to eat up one house, two houses, beaten back and back, creeping up in another place, beaten back again. The schoolboys took beaters and screamed at the enemy as they beat. The older ones remembered the first coming of the enemy. They said, It was a warning. They prayed while fear shook their aching arms. The life of the town writhed and gleams of color came out of its writhings, and a whiteness, as if the red tongues were cleansing away impurities. The mill managers brought their men to fight the enemy. We mustn't let it go, they said. Mr. Stillman had his two sons helping him. He talked to them while they fought the enemy together. He spoke of punishment for sin. His sons listened while the lust of fighting held their bodies. Helen Barton knelt at her father's feet while he was fighting the enemy, and swore she would never see Dr. Smelter again. She knew he was a bad man and could never bring her happiness. Lida, eldest daughter in the Shelton family, gathered her little sisters about her, quieting their clamors while her mother wrung her hands and said over and over again, "'To happen when your papa was getting on so nicely!' Lida resolved that she would put all thoughts of marrying out of her head. She would have to stop keeping company with Ned Bacchus, the hardware man's son. It was not fair to keep company with a man you did not intend to marry.' She would stay forever with her mother and help care for the children, so that her father would have a peaceful home life and not be tempted. All about, wherever they were, people prayed. They prayed until there was nothing left in their hearts but prayer, as there was nothing left in their bodies but a great tiredness. Then a heavy rain came and the red tongues drank greedily until they were slaked, and became little short red flickers of light on a soaked black ground. The enemy was conquered. One street of the town was gone. People ran to the church and held thanksgiving services. A stillness brooded over the town. Life hardly moved. The strands hung slack. Thanksgiving soon changed to revival. Services lasted a week. The ministers preached terrible sermons, burning with terrible words. 
Repent before it is too late. Twice God has warned this town. People vowed vows and sang as they had never sung before the hymns in their church songbooks. The strands of life leapt and contorted themselves, but they could not pull themselves apart. The revival ended. Building began. In a few months a street of houses sprang up defiant in yellow newness. In and out, of a pattern, little changed from its old accustomed, aspect, life pulsated in great waves over the heavy strands. In and out, up and down, it rushed, drawing threads tightly together, knotting them in fantastic knots that only the judgment day could undo. Mr. Stillman's sons were now young men. The younger was dying of heart trouble in a hospital in the city. The father had locked the elder in his room for two weeks on bread and water, until he found out exactly what had happened between his son and the Baringer's hired girl. Guy Stillman, full-blooded, dark and handsome, with high cheekbones like an Indian, declared vehemently that he would never marry the girl. Dave Fellows had taken his sons out of school to help him the year round in the woods. Sixteen-year-old Lawrence had left home and gone to work in the town barber shop late afternoons and evenings, in order to keep on at his work in the high school grades just established. He vowed he would never return home to be made into a lumberjack. Dave's wife was trying to persuade him to leave five points, and go to the city where her family lived. There the children could continue their schooling, and Dave could get work more suited to his ability than lumbering seemed to be. Dave, too proud to admit that he had not the capacity for carrying on this work successfully, refused to entertain any thought of leaving the place. "'If my family would stick by me, everything would come out all right,' he always said. Lyta Shelton still kept company with Ned Bacchus. When he begged her to marry him, she put him off another year until the children were a little better able to care for themselves. Her next youngest sister had married a dentist from another town, and had not asked her mother to the wedding. Lyda was trying to make it up to her mother in double devotion. Helen Barton met Dr. Smelter once too often, and her father made her marry him. She had a child born dead. Now she was holding clandestine meetings with Mr. Daly, a traveling salesman, home on one of his quarterly visits to his family. He had promised to take Helen away with him on his next trip, and make a home for her in the city. It was a sweltering hot Saturday in the first part of June. Every now and then the wind blew in from the east, picking up the dust and eddies. Abe Cohen's store was closed. His children wandered up and down the street, celebrating their Sabbath in best clothes and chastened behavior. Jim Dunn was watching a large consignment of goods for the company store being unloaded. He was telling Earl Henderson, the manager's nephew, how much it would cost him to get in with a poker crowd. George Brainerd had finished fixing up the company's accounts. He whistled as he worked. Dave Fellows was in debt three hundred dollars to the company. That would keep him another year. He was a good workman, but a poor manager. Sam Kent was in debt one hundred dollars. 
he would have to stay too. John Simpson had come out even. He could go if he wanted to. He was a troublemaker anyway. Helen Barton sat talking with Daly in the thick woods up back of the Presbyterian church. They were planning how to get away undetected on the evening train. If she was good enough for you then, she's good enough now, Mr. Stillman was saying to his defiant son. You're not fit for a better woman. You'll take care of her, and that's the end of it. Widow Stokes's half-witted son rode up from the extract works on an old bony horse. He brought word that the enemy was at the Kibbered Mill, two miles beyond the works. People were throwing their furniture into the mill-pond, he said. Every one laughed. Maudie Stokes was always telling big stories. The boy, puzzled, went round and round the town, stopping every one he met, telling his tale. Sweat poured down his pale face. At last he rode down to Trout Creek Mill and told Dave Fellows. Dave got on the old gray mule and came up to town to find out further news. The townsfolk, loafing under the trees around Main Street and going about on little errands, shouted when they saw Dave come in on his mule beside Motty on the bony horse. Two of a kind was passed round the circle of business and gossip, and sniggering went with it. Dave suggested that some one go down to see just what had happened. Jeers answered him. Believe a fool? Not quite that cracked yet. Dave went about uneasily if he had business to attend to, but kept an eye searching out in the direction of the works. In an hour or so another rider came panting into town. Back of him straggled families from the mills and works with whatever belongings they could bring on their backs. Fear came into the hearts of the citizens of Five Points. They shouted in anger to drive away their fear. "'Why didn't you stay and fight it? What'd you come up here for?' "'Too big, too big!' cried the lumberfolk, gesturing back over their shoulders. Far off a haze was gathering, and in the haze a redness appeared, growing slowly, more and more distinct. The townsfolk stared in the direction of the works, unwilling to believe. Someone shouted, "'Better be ready!' Shortly every pump in the town had its hand, and everything that could hold water was being filled for the oncoming thirsty beast. Dayfellows galloped down the long hills, around curves, across the bridge at the mill, and up again to his home, told his family of the approach of the enemy, directed them to pack up all the easily moved furniture, harness the two mules, and be ready to flee out through the forest past Goff's Mill to the next station thirty miles further down the railroad. No one could tell where the enemy would spread. He would come back the minute that all hope was lost. The boys must stay at home and take care of the place. "'Bring Lawrence back with you,' his wife called after him, and he turned and waved his hand. When he got back into town, thousands of red tongues were bearing down upon the station street. The enemy belched forth great hot breaths that swept the sky ahead of it like giant firecrackers, and falling upon the houses to the east of the town, ran from one to another, eating its way up the station street towards the center of the town." 
family after family left their homes carrying valuables dragging their small children and scattered to the north and south of the advancing enemy the town hotel emptied itself quickly of its temporary family jim dunn left the station carrying the cash box and a bundle of papers from building to building the enemy leaped before it fled group after group of persons from stores and homes methodically it went round the circle of shops the most rapacious customer the town had ever seen quarters of beeves in the meat shop bottles of liquids and powders on the drug store shelves barrels and boxes of food in the grocery store suits of clothing in abe cohen's the leather whips and carriage robes in the hardware store all went down its gullet with a most amazing ease swelled with its indiscriminate meal it started hesitantly on its way up the street that led to the presbyterian church now people lost their heads and ran hither and thither screaming and praying incoherently dragging their crying children about from one place to another pumping water frantically to offer it an impotent libation to an insatiable god they knew that neither the beating of brooms nor the water from their wells could quench the enemy that was upon them red judgment day was at hand meanwhile a peculiar thing happened the life that was hanging above the town lifted itself up high up entire in its pattern beyond the reach of red tongues of gusts from hot gullets and there it stayed while the enemy raged below dave fellows harangued the men who were beating away vainly pouring buckets of water on unquenchable tongues he pointed to the forest up the street back of the presbyterian church he was telling them that the only thing to do was to call forth another enemy to come down to battle with this one before it reached the church yes yes they chorused eagerly craftily they edged around south of the enemy scorching their faces against its streaming flank and ran swiftly far up the line of forest past the church there it was even at that moment that helen barton was begging dally to remember his promise and take her with him on the evening train the men scooped up leaves and small twigs and bending over invoked their champion to come forth and do battle for them presently it came forth shooting out little eager red tongues that danced and leaped glad to be coming forth growing larger and larger in leaps and bounds dave fellows watched anxiously the direction in which the hissing tongues sprang the wind will take it he said at last fitfully the breeze pressed up against the back of the newly born pushing more and more strongly as the tongues sprang higher and higher until finally it swept the full-grown monster down the track towards where the other monster was gorging for god's sake henry take me with you this evening as you promised helen was imploring dally i can't stay here any longer my father i wish now i had listened to him in the first place long ago daly did not hear her he had risen to his feet and holding his head back was drawing in great acrid breaths his florid face went white what is that he said hoarsely through the thick forest red tongues broke out sweeping towards them helen clutched daly's arm screaming he shook her off and turned to flee out by the church 
There, too, red tongues were leaping, curling back on themselves in long derisive snarls. Daly turned upon her. You— The two enemies met at the church, red tongue leaping against red tongue, crackling jaws breaking on crackling jaws, sizzling gullet straining against sizzling gullet. A great noise like the rending of a thousand fibres, a clap of red thunder, as the body of beast met the body of beast, and both lay crumpled upon the ground together, their long bodies writhing, bruised, red jaws snapping, red tongue eating red tongue. Upon them leaped the band of men spreading out the whole length of the bodies and beat, beat incessantly, desperately, tongue after tongue, hour after hour, beat, beat. Lingeringly the enemy died, a hard death. Three days it was dying, and it had watchers in plenty. Whenever a red tongue leaped into life, someone was there to lay it low. In the night-time the men watched, and in the day the women and girls. The men talked. "'We will build it up again in brick,' they said. "'That is safer, and it looks better, too.' The women talked, too. "'I hope Abe will get in some of those new lace curtains,' they said. Meanwhile, families gathered themselves together. Those whose homes were gone, encamped picnic fashion in the schoolhouse, or were taken in by those whose houses were still standing. Two persons were missing when the muster of the town was finally taken. They were Helen Barton and Mr. Daly. Jim Dunn said he wasn't sure, but he thought Daly left on the morning train. Daly's wife said he told her he was not going until evening. They searched for Helen far and wide. No trace of her was ever found. Her father stood in front of the Sunday school on the Sunday following the death of the enemy, and made an eloquent appeal for better life in the town. "'The wages of sin is death,' he declared. "'Death of the soul always, death of the body sometimes.' The people thought him inspired. Widow Stokes whispered to her neighbor, it's his daughter he's thinking of. Dave Fellows was the only person who left the town. He went back to his wife when he saw that the town was saved, and said, We might as well move now that we're packed up. The town is cursed. Two days later they took the train north from a pile of blackened timbers where the old station had stood. Lawrence went with them. The enemy had eaten up all the records in the company store and had tried to eat up George Brainerd while he was attempting to save them. The company had to accept the workers' own accounts. George was going about with his arm tied up, planning to keep a duplicate set of records in a place unassailable by the enemy. Abe Cohen wailed so about his losses and his little children that Mr. Stillman set him up in a brand new stock of clothing. Abe was telling everyone, Buy now, pay when you like and customers came, as of old. Guy Stillman married the Baringer's hired girl. His father established them in a little home out at the edge of the town. The nearest neighbor reported that Guy beat his wife. Lida married Ned Bacchus. Suppose you had died, she told Ned. I would never have forgiven myself. You can work in Papa's new grocery store. He's going to start one as soon as we can get the building done. Mama will have a son to help take care of her. 
life, its strands blackened by the strong breath of the enemy, settled down once more over the town and hung there, secure in its pattern, thick and powerful. Under it, brick stores and buildings rose up, and people stood about talking, complacently planning their days. "'It won't come again for a long time,' they said. End of The Life of Five Points Recording by Katie Riley July 2010When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Five Questions from Fairy Tales Collected in the Odenwald by J. W. Wolfe. Translated by Kenneth R. H. Mackenzie. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Hannah Harris. The Five Questions. A poor shepherd had only one son and no other child, so no wonder this son was spoiled. Everything he wished was done, and so he grew up quite wild, and not like little boys who are carefully looked after and taken care of. He did nothing and wouldn't learn anything, and so he was good for nothing. When he was twelve years old, his lonely life in the field did not please him, so he said that he would go begging and so see something of the world. What could his parents do in this case but just let him go? and so he went so he begged his way till he came to a great city where he sat down before a rich merchant's door pulled a piece of bread out of his wallet and bit it with as great an air as if the whole town was his own and he was dining off white bait and claret by chance the merchant was just coming in and he saw the little lad and was so pleased with him that he took him in and sent him to school and oh dear me he was such a clever boy at his books that he was always first in his class when he had learned everything there was to learn at school, he was put in the merchant's office, and there he made such capital progress that his foster-father could not help pointing him out to everybody. Now this was all very well, but what the merchant did not like was that the lad had grown into a very handsome fellow, and that his daughter had got a very good opinion of him, and so he was afraid that they would want to get married some of these days. So he made up his mind to send him away, that he might see the world, for then, thought he, they will soon forget each other. The youth was very glad to go, but before he set out, he went secretly to Emma, for that was the name of the merchant's daughter, and said, You are mine, and I am yours, and we will not part from each other. So then she promised to be true to him, and gave him a beautiful ring, and they parted amidst many tears. The youth went away and came to the sea. There he took a ship and went over to an island where there was a great kingdom. When he came into the capital, he was taken before the king, who asked where he was going and what he was seeking. "'I am seeking my fortune, but I do not know where I shall find it,' said he. "'When you find it, bring me mine,' said the king. "'And what might that be?' asked the youth. 
and the king replied my fortune is a tree which bears golden fruit but will not bear any more if you can make it do so i will give you a ton of gold from my treasury the youth promised to do this if he could and went back to his ship for he saw that his fortune was not to be gained upon the island after a passage of six days and six nights he came to another country and he went up to the capital on his showing his passport at the gate the sentinel led him to the king who was dressed in the deepest mourning where are you going asked the king i am seeking my fortune replied the youth then bring me mine too when you find yours said the king what is yours my fortune is a fountain that used formerly to throw out pearls but none spring out now and it is dried up if you can set it going again i will give you a ton of gold from my treasury he promised to do his best and went on for his fortune he saw was not to be found there for two months he went travelling about the land and then he came to the sea and he went on board ship travelled about for two months more and then the ship anchored at a large island he went on shore and came to the capital of the country where he found every one in deep mourning the king had ordered every stranger to be brought before him it seemed and so the guard led our young friend to the palace the king asked what the object of his journey was i am seeking my fortune said the young man Then the king said when you find it bring me mine too what is yours asked the youth and the king replied i had three daughters and some time since one was stolen from me if you will bring her back i will give you half my kingdom the young man promised to do all in his power and went on his way for where there was such mourning there could not be any chance of finding his good fortune he had gone a good distance again then one day he saw a palace before him a tall giant was keeping watch the gate and by way of a gun that had one of the largest cannons that ever was made in the world when he saw the youth he said why you earthworm where are you going i'm seeking my fortune said the young man then do you hear just bring me mine also will you if you will tell me what it is i will do my best said the other i have been keeping guard here said the giant for a thousand years and do not know how i am to be relieved well said the youth i will see he went on and on until he came to a broad river there was a boat upon it and in it sat an old old woman who asked him if he would not go over yes i wish to cross very much where are you going asked she and he said i am seeking my fortune oh said she when you find yours i wish you'd bring me mine what is yours asked he why i've been fairy woman here for the last thousand years and i don't know how i shall ever get away the young man promised very willingly to try and find out how she might get away went ashore on the other side and walked sturdily along until he came to a great forest in this forest he wandered about for a whole day but towards evening he came to a small forest house there he knocked a pretty young woman opened the door but she seemed much terrified when she saw him can i get shelter here for one night asked he it is your ill luck that has brought you here said she and you must not remain for you are not secure of your life a cannibal lives here who spares no one and if he should find you you are done for 
but I am so tired I cannot get any further, said the youth. Will you not hide me somewhere? I can't do that, said she, for he would smell you out, and besides that he knows everything that happens in the whole world. However, the young man begged so hard that she consented at last. She went and brought him some supper, and they sat down to table together. While they were eating, he told her the story of his journey, and of the five errands he had to perform. The woman was very kind-hearted, and promised him to learn from the cannibal what should be done. Suddenly there was a great noise and clatter in the forest, as if all the trees were falling. "'There he is!' cried the cannibal's wife, and the young man got under the bed as quickly as possible. He was scarcely hidden when the door flew open, and in stalked the cannibal. "'Hello!' he cried. "'I smell human flesh. Who is here, eh?' "'You stupid oaf,' said his wife. "'Can't you get accustomed to me yet? "'I'm here, of course, and here's your supper. "'And eat that and go to bed.' "'He was going to answer her and was just going to look under the bed "'when she plumped him down on his seat and fed him with a spoon. "'When she had fed him very full so that he could scarcely stir, "'she took him by the collar and cried out, "'Now come, march to bed with you, "'or else I shall never get you to move if you go to sleep.' "'Then he got slowly up and tumbled into bed, and in two minutes he was sound asleep and snoring so that it was heard fifty miles away. Then she said to the young man, Now, just mind what he answers to my questions. So she went to bed, and after some time gave the cannibal a tremendous dig in the ribs. He jumped and roared, What's the matter? She said, I dreamt that a king had a tree which bore golden fruit at one time, but afterwards it would not do so any more, and what was the reason of this? I know, said the cannibal. His minister is a hard man, and has been taxing the people and burying the money at the foot of the tree. Take that away, and the tree will bear golden fruit again. Then he turned round and went to sleep. In a little while she gave him another blow, and he jumped up and grumbled, What are you bothering me for again? I dreamt, said she, that a king had a spring which runs pearls, and the spring would not run any more. What might be the reason of it? Oh, said he, there's a toad sitting in it. If this is taken out, the spring will run again, better than ever. Now let me sleep quietly. He hadn't slept long before she gave him a box of the ear. Are you mad? says he. That you keep disturbing me? Oh, I'm dreaming so much tonight, she replied. I dreamt that a king had three daughters, and one of these was stolen. And where she is, nobody knows. But you must know. Well, said the cannibal, I think I ought, for that is your own self. He grinned at her and went to sleep again. At this the woman recollected who she was and where she had been brought up, and she asked the young man quietly if he would take her with him, or leave her there, for she was very anxious to go home. Without you, said he, I wouldn't go if it cost me my life. Then she took courage again, and hit the cannibal another blow on the ear. At this he was very angry, and roared out, This is a little too much. Are you going to leave me alone or not? Oh, it is so hot. I think I've got a fever, she said, for in all my life I never dreamt so much before. What have you been dreaming about now? asked he. Oh, I dreamt that a giant kept watch over a castle for a thousand years with a heavy cannon on his shoulder and didn't know how to get away. Oh, what a stupid fellow, growled the cannibal, lying down. 
why doesn't he give the cannon to the first fellow that passes and have done with it and now i say you must let me go to sleep or i'll show you that i'm not in joke any more and in a little while he began to snore again so that the house shook there was still one more question and so she dared to give him another sound slap at the ear at this however the monster jumped up gnashed his teeth with rage and tried to get hold of her she jumped out of bed however very quickly or he certainly would have eaten her but she got to the door and said now don't be cruel to me can i help dreaming and me having a fever this is the very last time he said that i'll suffer this if you do it again i eat you and your dreams too i promise you it shall never happen again she said to him i dreamt that an old woman had to keep a ferry boat for a thousand years and didn't know how to get away how was this to be done oh what a stupid she was said he why doesn't she give the oars to the first person that comes and then she'd be free and now take care and don't disturb me again for if you do i'll give you rest and myself too don't be afraid old goose she said and he soon went off as sound as a rock or as a little boy after a christmas party then she got up and the young man came out from under the bed and they opened the door and got far away as fast as ever they could and before morning they came to the river the old woman called out to him when she saw him a long time before he got down to the bank and asked whether he had got her good fortune yes said he and if you ferry us over quickly i will tell it you directly we get to the other side in one minute they were on the other side of the water and when they were out of the boat the young man told her what to do and they ran away and left her to do it when the giant saw the young man he too called out to him from the distance and asked if he had brought his good fortune i've got it said he but i will not tell it you until we have passed the gate and when he told him and the giant thanked him and was very glad when they got into the kingdom where the princess was going they hired a handsome carriage and had it decked with green boughs and the young man told every one that inquired about it that he had come to bring the king his lost daughter again so all the people went with the carriage and there was plenty of rejoicing in the capital however there was more rejoicing still the king and queen and the two other princesses were almost out of their senses with joy and for three months there was nothing but feasting and fun going on but the young man wished to get home and so the king had six mules laden with gold and said now choose between one of my daughters for a wife or these six loads of gold if i were not engaged replied the youth i would choose one of your three beautiful princesses for a wife but i must keep faith with my dear girl at home so i choose the six loads of gold just as you please said the king and the next day the youth took his departure and went over the sea to the next kingdom he went right off to the capital and to the king's palace and was announced there directly the king was very glad to see him again and asked him immediately have you brought my good fortune with you i have said the young man and told him all about the great toad so the builders were fetched and when the toad was taken out the pearls began to roll out so fast the builders were very nearly drowned but the king was so pleased that he presented the youth with two tons of gold instead of one and had a ship got ready to go wherever he liked in a little while he came into the first kingdom where he went at once to the king have you got my good fortune asked he yes replied the youth and told him all about the wicked minister who had doubled all the taxes 
then the money was dug up and no sooner had that been done than the tree began to bud golden fruit with such abundance that it seemed as if it was trying to make up for lost time the king gave the young man two tons of gold instead of one and a beautiful carriage and horses and servants besides merrily did the young man go on his way thinking of the time when he should see emma again when the ship anchored he got into his carriage and drove to the city where the merchant lived and went to a hotel opposite his house how astonished he was when he saw all the windows lighted up and music going on inside he asked the landlord what that meant and he answered the daughter of the house is going to be married but i'm told that she doesn't much like it it's her father's doing ah said the young man i must go and see that so he put on his best clothes and went into the house as he had been so many days away he had altered so much that nobody knew him not even emma herself indeed who would have expected that this noble-looking stranger was the poor youth he went up to emma and asked her to dance very willingly said she for now she wasn't obliged to dance with her hateful bridegroom while they were waltzing around the room he managed to let her see the ring upon his finger she looked at him with astonishment and turned very pale but he led her into another room and said emma do you not know me then she fainted away with joy and when she woke up again she was still lying in his arms her father and mother came as well as the bridegroom and were very much astonished that emma was so very friendly with this strange gentleman then the young man told them who he was and by what means he had got his money and that he was now richer than the king himself the guests listened with wonder all but the bridegroom who got away as fast as he could and nobody has ever seen him since avarice seized the heart of the merchant when the next day he saw the heaps of gold the young man had brought home with him and he said to his wife come let us try our fortune and see if we can make it as easily as he has done so they packed up and went to sea when they came to the first kingdom and asked after the king they were not received in the second kingdom the king sent them word to get out of the country and in the third although they were admitted they were told that they must be mad and very much laughed at but they did not lose heart for all that but went on their way and when they came to the giant he called to the merchant come here earthworm and relieve guard so he gave him the can and ran away but it was heavy and bent the merchant's back quite down his wife ran away quite frightened at the giant and came to the water the old woman took her into the boat and gave her the oars and jumped out and ran away so if nobody has been to relieve guard and to row the boat you'll find the merchant as steady as a mounted dragoon and his wife rowing like a member of a family's boat club end of the five questions from fairy tales collected in the odenwald by j w wolf read by hannah harris august 2010